As we take our seats together, I want to give our visiting speaker tonight a very warm welcome. It's our brother, the Reverend Reggie Kimbrough from our church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in America. And as we're coming to the minister's week of prayer this week, uh, the North American Presbytery always has two representatives over for our week of prayer to join with us. And so our brother has come over for the minister's week of prayer, and we're looking forward to fellowship with him and the Reverend John Wagner, who is also come across. And so we're glad tonight to be able to have our brother at our gospel meeting here in Hillsborough. We welcome him in the Saviour's great name, and we trust the Lord will bless him as he comes to read the scriptures and to bring a message from the Lord this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you, brother. Let me ask you to turn with me to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 59. And just a few words while you're turning. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this evening. I think I think I preached here once before um, about a dozen years or so ago. I think the Reverend Goods was here and uh, was during the Congress or shortly around that time. I certainly knew Reverend Stanley Barnes. He hosted us when I was a student and there were two or three of us that came for a week of prayer in 1987. I'm seeing some people out there that their birthdays are after 1987. But um, my brother asked me to tell you about the church in Winston and how long I've been there. I've ministered in Winston-Salem for 35 years and I would love to tell you that I started the church when I was 12 years old, but that would be a lie. Um, So uh, yeah, the years are coming on. But the Lord's given us a good work. It was slow work, certainly in the beginning. Uh, my city was not uh, filled with very many believers of the Reformed faith. Uh, there are several churches in the time I've been in Winston that have actually been founded that are Reformed in their doctrine. Uh, so that's a remarkable change from my years of upbringing. But the Lord's blessed us with a good people. We have about 75 or 80 people and really a spread of young and old. We have a couple of large families with lots of little ones. So our, our, it, it's, it's noisy after the service, let's put it that way. Um, but we have a very dear people. And uh, we remember you folks here in Northern Ireland. We're grateful for uh, the Lord's blessing us uh, through you folks so many years ago, and particularly through ministry of Dr. Alan Cairns and the church down in Greenville that we count really as our mother congregation. But I encourage you to pray for us. Uh, we have needs with regard to ministers. Some of the men, I was the baby of the early movement of the free church in North America. So some of the men I trained with are coming to retirement years. Uh, we already have some churches that are vacant. Uh, we have one that vacancy is being filled uh, even as we speak. The minister will be installed, one of the recent graduates from our seminary, a man named Logan Elder. is going to be installed in the church in Orlando um, January 15th. Uh, they've already moved there and taken up the work. But um, So pray for that. Pray for the Lord to raise up students. We have five currently studying in our seminary in Greenville, some that are on-campus students, and then two students from Mexico. 
the Lord is greatly prospering, actually, our brother's ministry in Mexico City. Uh, Jason Boyle, I think, has visited several of the churches here. But uh, pray for him. He needs strength for the many things that are on him. But there are a couple of young men from his congregation that are studying uh, online with us and doing well in their studies. So pray for that uh, part of our work in North America as well. Uh, We certainly need your prayers in that regard. But I want this evening to turn to a portion of Scripture. Begin reading in Isaiah 59. A brother has let me borrow his watch. Uh, I don't wear a watch at for years has just broken my skin out, and when I was interim moderator in our church in Florida after a vacancy several years ago, I borrowed a watch from one of the elders. I have a clock right there in the back of my church that I can see and keep track of myself while I'm preaching. In Orlando, there was no clock, and I asked about it, and they said, no, Reverend Wagner didn't want anybody looking at the clock while he was preaching. Okay, well, what about me looking at the clock while I'm preaching? So I borrowed a clock or a watch from one of the elders and put it in the pulpit that Sunday morning. Sunday night, I got to church. There were five watches in the pulpit. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Well, I'll try not to commit that error tonight and keep us here till midnight. But I want to read about the first half of this chapter. You'll notice there will be several familiar verses in it, some that the Apostle Paul draws heavily upon in the writing of the book of Romans. But let us read together the Lord's word from Isaiah 59 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath murmured perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths, the way of peace they know not. And there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us. Neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. And transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing away from our God. 
speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, and truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. Well, amen. We trust the Lord will add his own blessing to the public reading of his inspired word. I'll ask you to join with me, and let's bow our heads together again in a moment's prayer before we consider the word this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we've sung a gospel song this evening, reflecting on times like these, a song written half century ago. What would that hymn writer say to look at our times? Well, Lord, we ask that you'll give us grace, give us help tonight as we consider your word, seek to draw application in our own circumstances and needs. So give us ready hearts. Bless even this reading. Lord, this portion so applicable to our times, to our nations. But grant us help tonight in opening the word. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Although it is not my particular text, I want to draw your attention really to the last phrase of our reading tonight as we begin. As we read verse 15, we read, Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. Well, I know I do not say anything that is different here in your nation from my own when I say that these are desperate times. Uh, I have seen changes in my lifetime, both in the world and in the church, that I would never expected to have lived to see. One of the things, and I'll just share with you my main text and leading to other texts this evening, is the phrase, truth is fallen in the street. But I was reading an article in the news just a couple of weeks before I traveled here, and it just made me think afresh of this portion in that last phrase about the one that departs from evil making themselves a prey. There was an article of a teenage girl that was disciplined by her high school. She was expelled. Her crime, her breaking of the rules consisted in quietly speaking to a friend of hers before class started one day about being uncomfortable that a male student was present in the girls' locker rooms while they showered. This student was identifying as female and welcomed into their shower room by new policies. This girl was expelled. She was investigated for hate speech. Her parents have made suit against the school. I don't know how the outcome has gone. But what a remarkable thing that a school that you would hope would be entrusted with care and safety for your children would welcome a male student into the girl's shower room 
and expel a student for saying in private that she wasn't comfortable with that. If that isn't a world that's upside down, I don't know what is. And I know your nation deals with the same issues. And it was this and other things in the news and in our culture and, as I said, even in the church that a year or so ago just kept bringing this phrase from verse 14 to mind. Truth is fallen in the streets. And I collected some key portions of Scripture and actually preached a series of messages in my own congregation that I want to crystallize into one message for you this evening on the theme of truth. And not so much a proclamation of doctrinal truth for you this evening, though we're jealous for that in our pulpits. We need to know and understand the truth. But our attitudes, our perspectives, the relationship to truth that exists in the world and in the church. And Isaiah here describes the first of these texts that I want to draw us to this evening with that phrase, truth is fallen in the streets. And I want to suggest to you in our first thought tonight then the whole problem of abandoning truth. For this is exactly what Isaiah describes. This evangelical prophet, as he's called, preaching to Israel, God's own people, was preaching to a nation that had received, as Paul states it so plainly in Romans 3, and the question comes about what advantage then has the Jew, what profit is there of circumcision? He says, much every way, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For that to be true of Israel, and yet what we see described in Isaiah 59, true of the same Israel. You know, it's interesting in Romans 3, the apostle begins to crystallize that first argument in the book about man's depravity, about the revelation of wrath. As you're aware, he speaks of the the sinfulness of the world and of the Gentiles in particular in chapter 1. And then he hears an objector saying, yeah, but that's not us. And then in chapter 2, he directs his attention to the religious man that would think somehow he was exempt from the condemnation described in chapter 1. And he points out the one thinking he's exempt and the self-righteous Jew that would put himself in that place is also guilty before God. But in chapter 3, when he brings that to a conclusion and just gives that rapid-fire description of man outside of Christ, he pulls many phrases from this chapter. You think these, that their thoughts are iniquity? Wasting and destruction are in their paths, the way of peace they've not known, he says. He's pulling words that the prophet spoke against Israel. And I say, here is a picture of those that have abandoned truth. I mentioned Paul's phrase when he said that Israel had much advantage because it was to them the oracles of God had been committed. It makes me think of the words of another prophet, the prophet Amos. When I was 
a teenager during a period of time where the Lord had been wrestling with my own heart about the ministry. I was reading in Amos and I saw late in the prophecy the the text about a famine of the word. I thought, well, that's certainly true today. But it says there, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread or a thirsting for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall run to and fro from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. Now, as a young teenage Arminian, that hit me right between the eyes. You mean there are people that are seeking God's word and God's not going to let them find it. That didn't fit with my theology. And I said, what is going on here? So I started reading Amos. I just read it and I read it again. I read it again and I read it again and I read it again. And Amos just paints the picture of a people that were recipients of the word. One of the strongest statements in the Old Testament about God's election of Israel and his grace toward them is found in Amos when he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. It doesn't mean God was ignorant that there were other nations out there. There was a special acknowledgement, a special relationship with Israel, and it had granted them, as Paul calls them, his oracles. And the prophet himself was brought up on charges and brought before the king. And one of the false prophets of the land had this to say. He says, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the people of Israel. The land isn't able to bear all his words. Israel had truth. Israel had the word before God in chastening and judgment sent that famine of the word. And the way a nation gets to the place that is described in our text in Isaiah where truth is fallen in the streets is simply by abandoning the truth that they've already been given. I don't share a secret or a mystery when I say that in our nations, in the Western world that had known such blessing in the days and the days subsequent to the Reformation, such light shining to and from these nations, we have turned our backs on that truth. Apostasy prevails, and the fruits of apostasy. We can go back a hundred years and look at liberalism entering the seminaries, and then go back 75 years and see that liberalism creeping then into the churches, and the need for separatist churches such as this. But even in those days... The culture had not been so impacted by the abandonment of truth as we see now. Darkness prevailing, senseless evil and violence and perversions 
such as I described in that opening illustration. How do we get to such a place as this? By abandoning truth. And I tell you tonight, it is a fearful thing to live in nations, to live in a world where truth has fallen in the streets. I want to ask you to turn to the New Testament scriptures for our second thought this evening. If you turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. I won't do this in each case of these four key texts I want to look at this evening, but in this second one I want to read the context because, well, it's a sobering context and it sets the stage for the text we look at. So in John 18, if you'll look with me beginning in verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment and it was early. And they themselves, this is the chief priests, went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Couldn't touch any Gentile flooring or furniture, so they could eat the Passover the next day. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. And said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. There's their motive. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? Every now and then there are portions of Scripture. When I read them, I say, I don't know if you have the saying here, sharing with one of the brethren coming in that, it said we're two nations divided by a common language. Sometimes we use phrases and we know all the words in the phrase, but from one nation to the next, we don't have a clue what we said. Now that I've started this explanation, I'm forgetting the phrase I was getting ready to use that I was worried you wouldn't understand. Uh, a fly on the wall. I don't know if you would say that or not, but I would love to have been a fly on the wall. And to have heard the tone of voice and seen the expression of face when Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? The second 
thought I would suggest to you this evening is the prospect of negotiating truth. If we see in the abandonment of truth the reality of apostasy, in negotiating truth we come into the realm of pragmatism. It's almost humorous if we could speak that way reverently. To think of the thought processes of Pilate in dealing with the Jews. I mean, they won't even come into his judgment hall. They're so much holier than he, they can't touch his things. He has to go out to them to hold trial in and outside. Pilate understands the Jews for envy have delivered Jesus. He's not impressed with their holiness, their godliness, their humility. There's not really much of saving grace about them, is there? Although there's a remarkable phrase in the book of Acts later. That among these men. With the blood of Christ on their hands. There were many that were obedient to the faith. That's a gospel of grace. But Pilate looks at these men. He knows they have no love for him or Rome. But they'll cry out, we have no king but Caesar. You got to do something about this guy. He's threatening Caesar. And we love Caesar. It's that kind of thing that Pilate has in his mind when he says, what is truth? He himself isn't interested in truth. He knows Jesus is an innocent man. He tries to wiggle his way out of putting him to death, but the Jews will have nothing of it. So he says, go ahead and washes his hands of the matter. can see in the crucifixion the greatest crime in history, the greatest injustice in history, and yet in the providence and plan of God, our eternity hinged upon that day. But I say in our times, how many people could utter the phrase that Pilate uttered? What is truth? Well, that's good for you. That's your truth. I got my truth. You know, whatever makes you happy. It doesn't matter. There is no such thing as truth. Or if there is, we don't care about it. It's all negotiable. It all depends on the circumstances. It all depends on the agenda. I'm sure... In your nation is mine. You can find video record of politicians making a statement one day. And you don't even have to wait 10 years anymore to have an exactly opposite statement made by the same politician. They can say it within a day's time. Nobody cares. What's truth? It's fearful to live in such times. But times of negotiating truth are what follows the abandonment of truth. And it's like it was in the days of the judges. There's no king in Israel. 
Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Some can be held accountable and given the harshest sentence for the slightest crime. And some can be let go free for heinous crimes. And that's what turns a society and a nation such as our own and yours into the fearful places to live that these nations are becoming. Well, we can say amen and we can think about abandoning truth and negotiating truth. We can see apostasy and we can see pragmatism. But I want you to think thirdly with me this evening, and if you just turn the page back in your Bible to John 17. There's another giant text with regard to truth that I want to put before you this evening, and this applies to us as the Lord's people. And those are the words of John 17 and verse 17, and I'm sure you'll know these are in the midst of our Lord's high priestly prayer the night before his trial. And he says these familiar words, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If I could give you a title for this thought, it's this. Our need for discerning truth. Our need for wisdom. Now you could take this text as a theme to go throughout all the Word. A theme to underscore the need for our study of truth. For our understanding of the doctrines of the Word. And can I put that before you particularly for us as separatists, fundamentalists, whatever the titles are. Words get twisted over the years. But Bible-believing Christians that are serious about truth... But yet it becomes easy for us to let truth slip a little. It's easier if we can just plug in to, say, the right church. We can have the right do's and don'ts with regard to how we live. We can check all the right boxes, as it were, and begin to lose our grip on the gospel itself. Dear friend, Dr. Michael Barrett, that was with us for many years and president of our seminary for several years, had, in the 30 years prior to that, taught at Bob Jones University, which was the college for fundamentalist Christians in America for half a century during his days and longer now. He made a comment in one of his books about being greatly burdened over the years in his classes where he began to unfold particular truths with regard to the doctrine of salvation. He recounted one young girl in a class that burst into tears when he was unfolding the doctrine of imputed righteousness. And as she raised her hand to ask a question, or perhaps he inquired of her, She just said, I'm just so stunned, I've never heard this before. And it so overwhelmed her soul with an assurance that she had never known before. 
And he said it was at the same time greatly blessed that she had come to such assurance and joy in seeing more of the person and work of Jesus, but distressed because she had grown up in a fundamentalist church and in a Christian school. And she knew a lot about standards and how to live and what was right and what was wrong and how to dress and how all these boxes were checked. But she had lost a grip of truth. She'd never had it. A shallow knowledge, as it were, of the things of God. Friends, in trying days, we need deep roots in doctrine. That's what is a, will serve as a firm foundation for us when we're on trial for our faith. And when I think of this point that, again, I'm just compressing things that I brought in a series to our own people, but our need for wisdom to be discerning truth, we can get taken up in so many secondary things, and they may be important enough. And I'm not in any way suggesting that as a Christian we shouldn't look into those things, whether they're political matters, moral matters to be sure, and our society, but all these different questions that come. But at times they're questions where genuine Christians might disagree. The COVID pandemic put a lot of put the spotlight on a lot of things in our nations. I'm sure you had here as we did in America, people with Pretty different opinions about things like shutdowns and vaccines and a lot of time spent in social media airing those opinions. I don't fault anyone for their opinion on some of these hard questions. But you know, there's some of those that I can't just with an open Bible say, God's on this one. And if you're not here, you're not with God. I put a question to my people often. I ask them to ask themselves. When you walk into a room, what's the first thing people think of when they see you? Now, we can't know that. But I think it's a profitable question to ask ourselves many times, really. Again, we might have an opinion about secondary things. We might have an opinion about politics. I have strong opinions about politics in America. But saving America is not my primary mission. Understanding what God will do with America is not really any of my business. I can preach against sin. I can preach to politician or infant. 
the need of conversion and the truth of Scripture and that you'll stand before God one day for your decisions and your actions and all of these things. But you know, there have been a lot of nations, a lot of empires that have come and gone in the history of the world. The Church of Christ, the body of God's people through the ages, that remnant according to the election of grace, that people that are be a testimony to the person and work of Jesus to a watching world. What's the first person or the first thing someone thinks of when they think of you? Will you be one that perhaps in a day of the Lord moving in their circumstances and moving in their heart, will you be the one that this worldling comes to and asks a reason of the hope that lies within you? How much of gospel, I don't use that term lightly, how much of gospel grace, gospel living, is on display. All the boxes that we need to check, yes, many of them must be there. But they're just a result of the bigger thing. Here's another one. You know, we can judge ourselves and judge others regarding these various boxes of standards and whatnot. Just sometime go to the book of Galatians and read what it says of the fruit of the Spirit. The stuff that's really going to belong to the people of God. If there's ever a day in which the church needs to give a good, clear, humble, gospel testimony... It's a day such as a day when truth has fallen in the streets. We need to be a people that are sanctified by the truth. And so truth has got to be primary. Secondary things have to be secondary. Well, I glance at the watch and I must hasten. So let me leave that third thought of the discerning of truth, the need for wisdom, and come quickly to a fourth thought and a fourth text. If you turn back with me to the Old Testament scriptures, to the prophecy of Jack or Jeremiah, my jet lag, I almost made up a prophet, Jechariah. Jeremiah chapter 9, we'll just read the text in verse 3. And they bend their tongues like their bow for lies, but they are not valiant for the truth upon the earth. Here I suggest to you the need for defending truth. And this speaks to us of faithfulness. As separatists, you could say in many ways this has been our calling card. And yet I 
refer you back to the third point about our need for discernment and even some thoughts about our own attitude and perspective and our defense of truth. I mean, Jeremiah himself, what was he known as? The weeping prophet. He wept over the conditions that Isaiah described and had even grown worse in his day. Here's a phrase I'll put out there I don't know if you use, but would you ever say something like stick it in his eye? Or have a chip on your shoulder? You know, the times in our supposed defense of the truth that we're almost looking for trouble. Trouble will come to us in days like these if we defend the truth. We don't need to stir it up. I think about the prophet Daniel and his companions. They certainly lived in days where truth was fallen in the streets. Look at their attitude. You'll search the prophecy of Daniel, those historical sections, in vain to find them disrespectful, trying to stick it in the eye of the Gentile rulers. They served in the courts of these pagan emperors with integrity. When they had to take a stand in refusing the portion of meat that was given unto them and its connection with the idolatry of the land, they're, they're very jealous for the man that was given that order to say, look, we, we don't want to get you in trouble, but we've got a problem here. There were lines they wouldn't cross. But their perspective in the defense of truth was interesting. I was reading something in the book of Acts years ago when I was first tasked to teach that class in our seminary. If you remember the riot in Ephesus when the silversmiths noticed that uh, the books aren't looking too good. Uh, People aren't buying our little idols as much as they used to. There's this preacher in town and a lot of people are listening to him. They're burning their magic books. It's a remarkable sum of money that Luke mentions was burned up in those books. Paul had been in the city for nearly three years. And it speaks about the rulers of Asia, the Asiarchs that were in power there in Ephesus. And there's a little phrase I had never noticed, but they were among the people that were begging Paul not to go into the theater, not to expose himself to the mob. And it said of those political leaders of Ephesus, a little phrase, which were his friends. It made me think of something of the testimony of George Whitfield. In his many visits to America and his preaching in Philadelphia, he made a friend named Benjamin Franklin. He was not a godly man, wasn't a believer. Franklin would host him in his home. 
There was a point at which Franklin listened to him preaching and he was curious just because of the power of his voice that he, he started walking down a street from the point where Whitfield stood through the crowd and out past where the crowd stopped and he kept walking to mark the point where he could at the furthest distance still understand what Whitfield was saying. And he did the math to figure out how many people could have heard Whitfield. I forget the numbers, but it was a staggering number that Franklin came up with. But the point is, here's a man of integrity, a man of such testimony, that he gained a hearing for such a man as Franklin. Such was Paul. Such was Daniel. Such were Daniel's companions. There are going to be lines that we cannot cross. Don't mistake, please, anything I've said tonight as a promotion of compromising somewhere, going soft. That's not the point at all. If there's ever a day in which we need to be defenders of truth, it's in days where truth has fallen in the streets. And it may be that we come to such days. It's one thing to stand against religious apostates, liberal seminaries and liberal preachers and liberal denominations. They can't put you in jail. They can't. Close your bank account. But things like that are happening to political opponents today. Things like that doubtless are ahead of us as believers in our day. For these are days where truth has fallen in the streets. And it brings fearful prospects for our nations. But we need grace and power to be a testimony for truth, to be discerning and defending truth in days, in times like these. And I pray God will give us grace to search, to know the truth, and make it known. We'll ask our brother to come, close us in prayer, close the meeting. Well, going to sing a couple of verses of a hymn just as we close tonight. You're using the book. It's the hymn 281, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. We're just going to sing the first two verses. But I want to thank our brother tonight for being here. We've certainly appreciated his ministry, and we trust that the Lord will bless that word to our hearts this evening.